Tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16. We're on to the Old Testament this evening, Exodus chapter number 16. And uh, I want to begin by coming looking at uh, verse 1 through 5, and we'll come down through uh, some more of the chapter. But just to open up, we'll, we'll start with reading verse 1 down through verse 5. And uh, we find ourselves in a, uh, in a time when um, Israel is in the wilderness. They've been released by or freed by God from Egypt. And we learn a lot from their wilderness wanderings, if you could call it that. And uh, tonight I want us to look at God's merciful provision, God's merciful provision uh, that is seen with them in Exodus chapter number 16. And so let's begin reading there in verse 1. Notice, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." When we look at this passage, one of the great great things we learn from it is the provision of God for His people, uh, even despite His people not behaving as they ought to have behaved. Now, there's probably been times in our life where we have doubted or wondered where provision would come from for a particular thing. Maybe we've thought, how will we get through this, or how will this particular need be met, and we didn't know exactly uh, where that would come from, and then uh, in the right timing, God provided that very thing. After we had our first child jubilee, you know, we're thrilled and excited, thankful to be home with a healthy baby, And uh, but not too long after that, what comes to the house also? The bills, right? For the birth. Now, we didn't have the best insurance, so we had to pay a large percentage of that birth, and it's quite shocking how expensive it is to have babies uh, what all it entails with that. Uh, but we, we didn't make a whole lot of money either, and it seemed like every bill that came in the mail, mail my heart just sank. Oh, another one. And uh, they were hefty, large balances with due dates and having to pay on those. And so when you first get those, there's this rush of uh, fear and emotion. You're wondering what's going to happen with this. Uh, how are we going to get through it? But little by little along the way, the Lord provided what we needed to pay for the delivery of the child that he gave us. Every baby that comes is from him. But in the moment, there's uncertainty there. You don't know exactly how you're going to pay for it. You don't know how you're going to get through uh, certain things, obstacles that you face. And this is exactly what you see with the Israelites in our text. They are looking at a present situation that they've come to. They're looking at it with doubt, with fear, and even some regret about where they are. Ultimately, it boils down to them failing to trust God who had brought them out of Egypt. Now, most of us are very familiar with the people of Israel and their journey through the wilderness. God had delivered them from Egypt, a bondage in Egypt, slavery, and He did so with great power and glory. And they saw it with their own eyes. I mean, can you imagine being, being an Israelite 
and experiencing what they had experienced in Egypt and then on beyond out of Egypt. Uh, and we, so, so God was working greatly on behalf of them. And why is God doing this? He's doing this to set His people free, to establish them in their own land, make them their own nation, and ultimately this end goal is so that the Messiah would come through their line and come uh, be the Savior of the world. But it doesn't take long after God's deliverance of them from Egypt that they show their human and sinful nature. Though God had done the impossible before their eyes, they respond with great doubt and sin. But here's where we find God's mercy even exceeding that. Even despite their sin, in our text, what do we find with this? We find God's great mercy in still bringing provision for them in this wilderness account. So as we look at the people of Israel, we, we often see many examples that apply to us that we can learn from, many principles for our own Christian lives. And I want us to point out just a few things from this text and this narrative that I think are good for us to recognize. Notice in our notes tonight, number one, we see the murmuring of the people. The murmuring of the people. We look at uh, the sinfulness of how the people are responding and reacting uh, in their situation where God had brought them. And there's two points I want to bring out regarding this. Their response to this situation was a response of doubt. They have doubt in this scenario. If you look at verse 1, the people they, uh, of Israel are moving in their journey, being led by Moses as he's being led by the Lord. And, and so they've come from Egypt to a place known as the wilderness of sin. Now that place is situated southwest of Sinai. But this scene's always been somewhat ironic to me, considering what they do here. They come to the wilderness of sin, and what is it, what is it that they do? Well, they sin, right? Uh, that, just fitting for the place and the name. And, and how is it that they sin? Well, notice verse 2. It says, "...the whole congregation of the people of Israel..." grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, what is it to grumble? Well, we're, we're familiar with what this is. Uh, uh, the definition here means to express oneself in low tones of disapprobation, or uh, we would call it complaining, right? We would call it complaining. Some translations will call it murmuring. So these are, these are the terms we use to describe this. And this isn't the first time they've done this since they've been freed from Egypt. Where do we see them grumbling previously? Well, you just go back one chapter and you see them doing that when they were in need of water. Uh, Exodus 15.24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? So they're on this wilderness journey and they're grumbling, they're murmuring. What's, what are we going to drink? We need water, Moses. Well, that wouldn't be the last time. This wouldn't be the last time they would grumble either. We skip forward to chapter 17, the next chapter. And what do we see them doing? The Bible says in verse, 7, verse 3 of chapter 17, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled or murmured against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock with thirst? I mean, it's just like, it's like a broken record, right? It's like the same thing over and over and over again. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And it's over things that they need to survive. But God has provided these things. Now, we hear quite a bit of grumbling and complaining in our day over many things. People complain about nearly anything. And by the way, that's our natural tendency, isn't it? Our natural tendency is to grumble. 
It is to complain about things that make us uncomfortable or things that make us fearful or maybe things that we wish would be different. We by nature are complainers. It is a sinful thing that's inherited in us. Now, it's one thing to have one or two grumble about something. But notice in verse 2 that with Moses and Aaron, it's the whole congregation. The whole congregation. Now, that makes me think, well, how big is this congregation? How many people is he hearing mumble and grumble? Well, we can get somewhat of an estimate from Scripture. In Exodus 12, verse 37, the Bible says the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So you've got 600,000 men, not counting women and children. Now, you add in the women and children, you have well over a million people. Some estimate upwards of 2 million, depending on how big the families were, maybe even more than that. But just imagine for a moment a fraction of that people complaining to you that we need food, Moses. We need food, Moses. You've brought us here to die, Moses. Now, I know what it's like to hear complaints. And let me tell you, it can be hard to handle just two murmurs at one time. And now God's blessed us with a third murmurer. And he's getting pretty good at that, okay? Even though he can't say his words yet, uh, he has his own way of letting us know he's unhappy, right? Um, so we, we hear grumbling every day. I mean, from the time we open our eyes, David's first and continual plaint is, I'm hungry. And if, if you don't get your, get his food fast enough, he's just, it just gets worse. The sigh gets deeper. I'm so hungry, Dad. That's just how he is. Jubilee has her own forms of this. But you can imagine the flow, the connection, hearing from Moses, the grumbling of the voices spreading throughout this vast crowd of people, and they're grumbling and murmuring against Moses and Aaron. And so they're grumbling here. It is all about their need for food. Now, we read in verse 3. We see it continue. In verse 3, what do we find at the uh, latter part of this verse? What's their accusation here? Their accusation is this. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, not only are they blaming Moses for no food, but now they're saying, you're intending to kill us. You're trying to get rid of us. I mean, think about the accusation of this. They left Egypt with a great spoil of items from the Egyptians, including food. They've, they've been on this journey for about a month now, and so they're needing fresh food. Food only lasts so long, right? So this leads them to their present doubt about what's happening here. Their doubt is so severe, they think God is just going to allow them to die of hunger after all that God had done for them. I mean, think about the ten plagues in Egypt and how God spared and protected them through those plagues. You think about the parting of the Red Sea. Everything that God has done in His power and might... And yet now their conclusion is all of that, Lord, was just to bring us out here to starve us to death. Doesn't that show you how, how weak our human minds are? I, I mean, think about that. But how often don't, do we do the same thing? Maybe not to that extreme measure where we think God's going to starve us to death. But how often do we come to our own scenario with doubt, forgetting what God has done in the past already? In similar scenarios, we are forgetful people. We tend to do that. 
And when we forget how God provides, we tend to grumble or complain when we doubt our present situation. That's our natural inclination, is to complain in a similar fashion. So Israel's a picture of all of us. But notice, letter B, that not only was their response to this situation, uh, was it with doubt, but it was also with discontentment. Discontentment. And these two certainly sometimes go hand in hand. Notice, as they're murmuring to Moses, notice what they specifically say in verse 3. In the, fir- in the middle part of this verse, or the first part, he says, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. In other words, in their view, if we're going to die, we would have much rather died in Egypt with our bellies full. We'd much rather died in slavery with full bellies. See, they're looking at their present circumstance and making it cause them to look at the past with desire. I wish we were back there. And they're looking at the present circumstance with great discontentment. Now, we think about how backward that is. They would rather be a slave in Egypt than be free with God, all because they mistakenly think the Lord has brought them out there to die of hunger. They look backwards towards Egypt, wishing they were still there. They are discontent with where the Lord has brought them. And friend, this is the danger of discontentment. It will cause us to wish what we shouldn't and desire what you can't have. It will lead to living and doing things that are contrary to the law of God and contrary to the leading of God. Now, this was a consistent issue with Israel throughout their history. We learn much throughout their history. We read of Jeremiah in his days, Jeremiah 7.24, where the Lord is speaking about his own people. He says, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in the counsels of their own stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. That just seems like a reoccurring thing for them. You know, they repent and get right, then they get comfortable again. They go backwards, they get discontent. They, They had a problem of not being content with what God had given them or with what His instructions were for them. They were not satisfied in God alone. They always were looking for something else. And I think there's a tremendous lesson for us as Christians today. We are not to look backward toward what we have been delivered from, We are not to look with discontent uh, on the leading of God or the word of God for our lives. We will often find ourselves in situations that are less than maybe we would prefer. Haven't we all been there? We find ourselves in situations where we wish things were different. Maybe the circumstances could be a little bit better. And this is where we're tempted with discontentment with God. So we have to remember what God's doing, how good He is, and that He has a purpose for everything that we encounter. Um, Paul was one who often uh, endured situations of having little to nothing, but yet he found his contentment in Christ. Philippians 4.11 says, not that, I speak in, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I, I, am, I am to be content. And I find great comfort in that. It's a great reminder for me that, that, that whatever situation that we come to, that God allows us into or brings us into, Paul's an example here. He says, whatever, he's, whatever situation he's in, he's learned to be content. And by all means, that word learned is important. 
Because this is part of our Christian growth and experience. We learn what it is to be content. You don't get saved and then automatically you're just, you're just perfect in every area of your life. Contentment is one of those things that we also need growth in. Hebrews 13.5 I think is a great text for this. Let me read this to us tonight. Hebrews 13.5 and uh, we know that Hebrews is, is written to uh, Christians who were, who were in, in a uh, time of suffering. They're being tempted to forsake their faith. Uh, persecution was on the rise in that day. And notice that the Hebrews author says in Hebrews 13 verse 5, he says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So look, look at that and what, what is the basis of contentment? Not being drawn with lust after the things of the world or better situations or more wealth. All the things the world says makes us happy. What is the basis of our contentment right here? It's based on what Christ has said. And what has He said? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The basis of your contentment is having Christ. Because Christ is everything to us. You may not have much in this world. But if you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything. And that's where the world doesn't see why we Christians can be happy with little, even in suffering, even though they may have everything they want in the world. You see, everybody, the, world, the world around us, they can accumulate all they want, but they're not truly happy. They're not truly happy. Because what man needs is what will satisfy his soul. And what he seeks to satisfy his soul is everything except Christ. Because he doesn't want Christ. Christ conflicts with his ungodly nature. So notice that our contentment is rooted in Christ because he's the one who will never leave us or forsake us and is always going to be the one who gives us the provisions that we need. So here's what we learn from this. If we have the Lord, we have all we need because from him comes all provisions. Where God guides us, he will provide for us. So understand that principle. The Israelites had not learned this yet. Notice number two, we see not only the murmuring of the people, but we see the mercy of the Lord through this text. The mercy of the Lord. Now, we see His mercy in a couple ways. The first way is this. We see God's prevention of judgment. The fact that He withholds judgment on His people here is an act of mercy. Now, consider for a moment who the Israelites are, what they have experienced, what they have seen, and what they are now saying. They have been delivered by Almighty God, who is holy, who is sovereign, who is compassionate, who is powerful. They have seen Him work wonders in Egypt on their behalf. The ten plagues to set them free. The crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. Overtaking the Egyptians with the sea. They have already experienced one great act of God's provision with the waters of Marah that we read, in, read of in the previous chapter. And now they are grumbling in a way that is truly disgraceful to God. Verse 1, we read that they came to this place, the wilderness on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. That's 30 days after their departure from Egypt. 
God's been with them. God's been guiding them at least for a month now already. What do you think the Israelites deserve? What are they worthy of? They're worthy of God's judgment. They're worthy of it. And here's here here, here here's here's why because of murmuring and groaning uh, grumbling is sinful. Here's what murmuring does. It is the opposite of being thankful. Number one, unthankfulness is sin. You read through Scripture, unthankfulness is sin. Secondly, it poisons grumbling poisons your attitude and your perspective of things. It poisons it. Number three, grumbling it is contagious. It easily influences others who hear the grumbling. Fourthly and ultimately, it reveals a distrust in God. Lack of faith is always displeasing to God. So all of these things that coincide with grumbling are sinful. And the response of the Israelites in the wilderness, it highlights the depravity of man's nature. Man can see and experience the great works of God one day and the very next day doubt him. And what he's doing. That's just how it goes, isn't it? Israel did this time and time again. Psalm 106.21 They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Just think about that statement. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. You see, this is the sad nature within us because of sin. Now, what could God have said in this moment? Upon their grumbling, here's what He could have said. He could have said, I'm going to rain fire and brimstone from heaven on you. I'm tired of dealing with you guys. Did He have the right to do that? Absolutely He did. They had no right to question God. They had no right to doubt Him. They had no right to complain against Him. Yet they do it boldly. Yet, how does God respond to them? Verse 4, notice this in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, that's the opposite of what I would expect. That's the opposite. This shows us a mercy from God beyond what we can comprehend in our minds. Now, if my children are whining and complaining about something... My response is usually not to give them what they're whining and complaining about. Usually because I want them to learn, you don't need to be whining and complaining about these sorts of things. But this is a unique scenario. By all means, understand, they're going to whine and complain again and God is going to bring judgment. But here He's teaching them through mercy. You can learn both ways. And He's teaching them through mercy. Teaching them how His mercy is going to reflect in this action. We, we, we see how great God's mercy is towards His people. Lamentations 3, 22-23 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning we wake up to new mercy. Consider your own life. How often we have done the exact same thing in different ways that the Israelites have. And yet oftentimes, God does not immediately bring His arm of correction upon us, does He? He gives us a space of mercy. Now, God has given us these historical accounts of Israel of the Israelites as lessons and types to teach us today. Paul confirms this. 
If you read what Paul says, he uses the Israelites as an example for the Corinthian church. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10 through 11. He tells that church, nor grumble. That's the word for murmuring. Same thing. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So why this is one reason the Old Testament is important for us, right? We learn from it. The Old Testament and the New Testament link together. And so God has given this example of His mercy, but also an example that we ought not to be as the Israelites were uh, in, in grumbling and murmuring and doubting God. So the mercy of the Lord here is seen in His prevention of judgment, having mercy on them and not giving them what they do deserve for this. But notice letter B here. We see His mercy also displayed in His promise to give them bread. Notice God's promise of bread for His people. In verse 4, He says, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, God does not do this by ignoring their sin of murmuring. It's addressed throughout this passage. He's not ignoring or scooting it under the rug. Don't, don't mistake that. But what we do see is that He is promising to provide for them what they need in this wilderness. God will provide for them. They must learn not to doubt God and become discontent. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 35, 20, 20, 37, 25. This is a true, true text for us to remember. David says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. And understand that God does provide for his children. You may not always have everything you want, but by all means you have what you need. There is a difference. Now, we live in a day and age when our wants are mistaken for our needs. And if we don't have what we want, we're not getting what we need, we think, right? But we must recognize that in every situation that God will provide what is sufficient. Many of us have probably heard of the great missionary Hudson Taylor. He wrote, he was a missionary to China, and he wrote in his journal, he said, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. And here's what he's known for this, this quote he's known for. He says, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And he's right about that. See, he was a missionary who trusted God to provide for him in China. And here's the reality for all of us, is that God will provide for his children what they need. But notice also, there's another reason for this provision. Not only is God going to provide for them, he's also going to prove them. And in other words, he's going to test them through this whole thing. This is also a testing ground. If you look at verse 4, notice what he says. He says, the people shall go out... The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. When we come to situations like the Israelites, you must understand that that is testing ground. Testing ground. 
It is a test to our faith in him and our faithfulness to him. Both of those are important. Now, this was not the first test that they had already gone through. Back when they grumbled about water and then God provided for them, God pointed out this also was a test. If you read Exodus 15.25, He cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there He tested them. So, what do we gather from that test with the water to this test with the bread? They didn't pay real close attention, did they? They didn't, they didn't learn from that test all too well like they should have. They didn't look back in this situation with the bread and they, they didn't say to themselves, hey, wait a minute, remember when God provided water and we were thirsty? He can do that with our hunger too. They didn't say that. You see, their test of faith shows much about their hearts that they did not trust the Lord like they should have trusted Him. And here's the great truth for all of us in our own difficult circumstances. It's that God tests both our faith and our faithfulness to Him. Probably one of the best passages on this is James chapter number 1. I want to read this to you. James 1 and verse 2 through verse 4 for a moment. Again, James is writing to Christians who are going through suffering. Much of your New Testament, in fact, I would say most of your New Testament is written to suffering Christians. Those who were uh, in, in times of difficulty. And here's what James says in James 1, verse 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, notice that, that James says to count it all joy when you come to trials of various kinds. But what does he say about this? What does he say about our trials? He calls them the testing of our faith. Testing of our faith. What is our faith? Our faith is our trust and reliance upon God. So trials that we experience are a test to how much we trust the Lord. And that's what these are all about, is about growing our faith and trusting in Him in all circumstances. You see, God grows our faith through difficult situations, just like He does with the Israelites. You understand, the Israelites as a collective people, they are young in their faith. They've seen many great things, but they still need to grow and be tested to grow. And as we'll see, they don't pass this test very well, again, nevertheless, God is still merciful. Notice with me number three tonight, we see the manna from heaven. The manna from heaven. And we notice with this manna, there's a couple things I want to point out to you about it. The first thing we learn is that God's supply was sufficient for them. God's supply was sufficient for them. You'll notice that God promised that He would rain bread from heaven. This means that God is going to give them the substance they need to eat and live. They're not going to die of starvation. They're not going to die of hunger. And you'll notice God's instructions for them. In verse 4, He says for them to gather a day's portion every day. Then in verse 5, He tells them to gather a double or twice as much on the sixth day of the week so they'll have enough for the seventh day because He wasn't going to bring it down on the seventh day. That would be their Sabbath day. So they're going to have to get enough to eat for the sixth day and the seventh day. So what's God doing here? 
God is laying out daily provisions for them. Now, hold on a minute. Isn't this how we're supposed to live our Christian life? Are we supposed to live it week by week, month by month, or day by day? Day by day. Now, I'm a planner. I love to plan out what's coming up this week, what's happening next month, even a few months down the road. But what's Scripture teach us? Boast not thyself of what? Tomorrow. Because you don't know what a day will bring forth, right? So we're to live day by day. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6.11. Give us this day our daily bread, right? And so with this instruction, Moses is, Moses, God is giving them instruction for their day-to-day manner of eating. But also Moses rebukes them for their grumbling, revealing the true nature of that sin. In verse 7, at the end of that verse, he says, What are we that you grumble against us? Moses didn't have the power to produce bread. Neither did Aaron. He didn't have the power to do that. He goes on to say at the end of verse 8, notice this, this is important for us. He says, What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against who? The Lord God, right? And that's something that we need to take to heart as Christians today. When we grumble, when we complain, when we murmur, we may complain to somebody or about something, but ultimately this form of grumbling is against the providence of God in that day. In that day. There's, all, there's oftentimes things that will come in our day that we wish didn't come into our day, right? Interruptions, things that happen you didn't expect. But sometimes we need to look at that and say, thank you, Lord, for your providence today. Even though I wasn't expecting that, it was still clearly of you because it happened. <laughs> Our days are governed by a sovereign God. Now, we notice that, that Moses and the Lord here through Scripture, he's not ignoring the sin of the Israelites. He's warning them here. This is a warning because they're going to do it again and get the punishment for it, right? They're clearly rebuked for it. But notice that God's provision for them. What would it do for them? You read verse 6 and verse 7. Here's what, here's what the result of this is. He says, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. What's the point of this provision? To remind them and point to them, help make known to them, the Lord who did all that in Egypt, He's still here. He's the one Lord. He is God, nobody else. You read verse 11 through verse 15, and you'll notice this. He says here, And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said one to another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. You see, in all of this, we find that in all that God does in our lives, He wants His people to know that He is God. He wants us to understand that every provision we have is from Him. He is our God. 
He is our Lord. He wants us to, to, to tangibly in our minds recognize this. You see, this food that is given, it would unmistakably be coming from God for a couple reasons. First reason is this. They had no food, and then food just appears. Quail in the evening, manna in the morning. They have, they're able to eat morning and evening. Only God could do such a thing, right? They didn't have the power to do that. didn't come from them. But then we also see this morning food is, is a unique thing. Verse 15, we see it, it he calls it, uh, he says, they call it, what is it? And that, uh, that's also known as manna, right? The, the word for manna literally means what? <laughs> well, the question mark. What is it? It's somewhat of a mysterious food. They weren't certain what it was. But it was a food that would sustain them, and apparently it had some kind of a good taste to it. If you read verse 31, you'll notice that, that uh, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now, this coriander seed was a, a small, globular, grayish, aromatic something, tasting like honey cakes is what one commentary said it was. But I know this, anything with honey on it tastes good, right? I mean, honey just makes everything sweet. So, so God's giving them, it's not like he's giving them uh, you know, this, this bland stuff that it's like torture to eat, right? This is something that actually tastes good. And so he's giving them what they need. The psalmist recalls this miracle of the Lord saying, He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. The psalmist here speaks of this manna as bread of angels to signify the supernatural nature by which this provision came. It came from heaven, the very dwelling place of angels. This food was God's doing alone. And surely, having received such a miraculous provision, the people would obey God just as they ought to, right? Wouldn't that be what we'd expect? Well, what do you see as you read through the chapter? I won't do it for time's sake, but go read verse 16 through 21. What happens? God told them to get enough for each day. What they do? They start storing it and storing it and storing it, thinking that God's not going to give it to them the next day. Still doubting, Right? And what happens to that overflow they stored? It hurt, it, it, it's, it's spoiled and ruined. You see, there, there's a great picture here for us, a great application to trust God day by day. But notice with me, letter B, and lastly, there's, there's a provision here that gives us a bigger picture. Not only do we see God's supply was sufficient for them, but God's salvation is seen through this account. God's salvation is seen. When we look at the bigger picture of God's deliverance of Israel, the supply of their great needs in the wilderness, it brings us to see ultimately the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus. You see, the bread from heaven in the wilderness would save their physical bodies, but there is a far greater picture seen in this narrative. It's the picture of God providing salvation, not from starvation, but from sin. Not the continued physical life, but to give eternal life. And to point this out, I'll read to you from John 6. Turn there with me if you would. In John 6 and verse 30 through 35 for a moment. This is where Jesus has an encounter with the Jews of his day. And Jesus brings up this historical account to point to himself. And if you look at verse 30, he, this Bible says, So they said to him, 
What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, when you look at that parallel as the bread of God, what is it that we see Jesus provides for us? He completely satisfies and sustains both our hunger and thirst. And this is not about the physical. This is about the spiritual. This is our greatest need. The Israelites were wandering in the wilderness of sin, and so are we spiritually. But when he tells them about this bread that just is life-changing, continually satisfies, their response is, give us this bread. We want this bread, Lord. Who wouldn't want that bread that perfectly satisfies? But they didn't understand. They're thinking of the physical, not the spiritual, as we see later on in the text. But we'll see the connection. If you read verse 41 through verse 51, I won't for time's sake, Jesus again rebukes them for grumbling. The Jews do the same thing. They start grumbling against Him. But He shows them their greatest need is not for them to have physical bread to give them physical life. They need spiritual bread. It gives them spiritual life. And that bread is Jesus alone. Charles Spurgeon said this, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. What more do we need? You see, the great gift of everlasting life is something only God could provide. Just like in the wilderness, only He could provide that manna. Something only God could give. And Jesus makes plain in verse 36 through verse 37 why they don't have it and what happens with those who do come to it. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And you'll notice in verse 47 what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What do we learn from this? We learn that partaking of this spiritual bread is by grace alone and is not of ourselves. It's something God has provided in Christ. God alone. And those who believe partake of this great bread. And this is the wonder of God's grace that He's manifested towards us. Just like with the Israelites in the Old Testament, He provided everything they needed. Same applies spiritually to us in the New Testament. God has provided everything we needed in Christ alone. So we often, we, we look at the Israelites and we can find ourselves in them in a lot of ways. We cannot save or sustain ourselves. We must have Christ as the bread of life. So this, this passage brings us to see a little bit of ourselves in our own world, in our own life. We need the bread from heaven, the Savior, which is Jesus Christ. And if we do have Him, we know Him, we need to trust Him with everything else in our life too. He's providential over everything, all of our needs, every day, what we experience. He's providential over those things. And so we need to trust Him with whatever it is that He brings to us and what He provides for us.